If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Before we read, I would remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the name Richard Dawkins. He is a British evolutionary biologist who says there is no God. And uh, he's, you could say he's an active evangelist uh, for trying to bring people out of Christianity or really out of any religion at all. Uh, he's written books on this. Um, he often engages in interviews uh, on this topic. And in one of those recent interviews, a, a video question and an answer period, he asked this question of people that would trust in Christ or people that would believe and live according to the Bible. He said, do you want to be comforted by a falsehood? Do you want to be comforted by a falsehood? You see, he believes that the gospel, the Bible, the word of God is false, that it's a lie. He believes that death is the end. There's nothing after death. And so there's no value in his mind in religion, even if people find hope or comfort in it and the hardships of life. He asks this question, do you want to find comfort in a falsehood? I do think that it's an important question for us to consider, uh, perhaps a fair question to consider. Do you want to put your hope in something that is not true? Do you want to trust in a dead end, essentially, is what he's asking. And I don't think that any of us or anyone wants to intentionally build their lives on a lie to find comfort in something that is not true. Followers of Christ don't want that for anyone. I don't want that for myself or my family or for you. We believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the way and the truth and the life, that he is our only comfort in life and in death. We believe that Jesus is our only hope for the righteousness that we need to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God, to have eternal life. But Richard Dawkins sees 
no need for this righteousness because he says that death is the end. He does not believe in judgment of any kind, of any kind of life after death. But there are others who also see no need for this righteousness, no need for Jesus Christ, because they believe that they can establish or work for their own righteousness. Those of us who just enjoyed our study uh, through the book Pilgrim's Progress this summer might think of ignorance. The character ignorance in that study, that book, was, was someone who perhaps thought that he could work his own way to God, his own righteousness. But as we're studying, our, uh, studying through the book of Romans together, let's remember way back at the beginning, chapter 1, the theme verse of the book, Romans 1, verse 16, maybe verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is a book about the gospel, and Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? There are different ways that you can summarize the best news the world has ever heard, this true news about our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of them that some of you may be heard if you've grown up in the church is the Romans Road. So it's fitting for us to think about that in our study through the book of Romans. You can take different passages through the book of Romans to summarize the gospel. So Romans 3.23 Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, and Romans 10.9. If you learn those verses and someone asks you, what is the gospel? That's a simple outline you can use. So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5a, but God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ took that, the wages of sin, that punishment that we deserved upon his own body in the tree. And then Romans 10.9, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a simple summary of the gospel. And Paul says that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we are reminding ourselves of the main theme of the book of Romans as we come to this section, Romans 9.30 through 10.4. And if, if we would summarize the main point of this section this morning, I'd put it like this. The aim of the law is that we would trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Or you could say the aim of the law is that we would trust in Jesus Christ alone for the righteousness that we need to be reconciled to God. And as we study this, I just want to emphasize to you, and I hope that the Holy Spirit will bear upon your hearts and your minds the truth of this word, this word that it's not a falsehood that we stand on. It's not a falsehood that we find comfort in, but it is indeed the truth of Jesus Christ. So the aim of the law is that in Christ alone, we would see, we would find the righteousness we need to be reconciled to God. Paul 
is seeing this happen in the lives of the Gentiles. And it's his great desire, his great prayer, that this would also happen in the lives of the Israelites. Now, we're going to consider this main point under three headings this morning. First, Christ is your hope for righteousness. Christ is your hope for righteousness. Second, when you trust in Christ for righteousness, you will never be put to shame. So you're not finding comfort in a falsehood, but in the only hope for salvation. And then third, may we desire and pray that everyone would be saved or that everyone would believe this. So Paul begins this section in verse 30 with another question. What shall we say then? What shall we say about the unbelief of the Israelites, God's covenant people in the Old Testament? But also, what shall we say about the belief, the faith of the Gentiles? And the first thing that we're going to say is this. Christ is the only hope for righteousness for both Israel and the Gentiles. Indeed, for everyone. Or we can make it personal. Christ is your only hope for righteousness today. So in this passage, Paul is making a contrast between the Gentiles who received this righteousness and the Israelites who did not. And there's an obvious emphasis on righteousness throughout this section. Paul mentions this word nine times. And righteousness here in this passage means to be approved by God or to be made acceptable to the holy God. It refers to the right standing with God that is the result of God's justifying work through his son, Jesus Christ, that comes only through faith in Christ alone. It's the righteousness that we think about or we talk about in the doctrine of justification. So what is justification? We haven't emphasized it over the last several weeks, but if you were here earlier through our study of Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, Paul was emphasizing justification over and over and over again. And during that time, we looked at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asked that question, what is justification? And here's the simple answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace... And there's two parts of it, wherein, first part, he pardons all our sins, and then second part, and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is justification and the righteousness that Paul's talking about in this section. And beloved, this is essential to the gospel. This is a key component of how we rehearse the gospel together as we gather for worship each Sunday. It is, in fact, in our worship guide, one of our bold headings. If you have your worship guide handy, you turn back to page 7. You'll see at the top there, in bold, capital letters, Jesus reconciles us. Jesus reconciles us. And today, uh, we read 1 Peter 3.18, and each week we try to use truth from the word of God to remind us of this all-important truth of the gospel. So today, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God or he might reconcile us to God. And how does he do that? Being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the spirit through his death and his resurrection. So this is what Paul is talking about in his repeated use of the word righteousness in this section. He's talking about a right standing before God, being reconciled to God. And he tells us the Gentiles were not seeking this by serious efforts to obey God's law, but the Jews were. But Paul says the Gentiles, who did not pursue this righteousness, ended up attaining it by faith, while Israel, the Jews, they were pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed. Now, we'll look look at why they failed or did not succeed in just a moment. But first, notice that phrase, a law that would lead to righteousness. What does that mean? When Paul uses the word law, Big picture, he's referring to the Old Testament law. Further summarized could be the Mosaic law. Further, further in could be summarized in the Ten Commandments. So he's saying that Israel, the Jews, they were seeking to obey the law in order to achieve righteousness. To earn, to merit their own righteousness. And in verse 32, Paul tells us why they did not succeed. Because they did not pursue it, they didn't pursue this righteousness or justification or peace with God by faith, but as it were, based on works. So they thought that peace with God could come because of something that they did instead of what Jesus did. Now before we go straight to criticizing them, before we say, how could they do that? We're so much better than them. We're not, but before we jump to that, look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. These Israelites who did not attain this righteousness, they had a zeal for God. So Paul is talking about people who loved God's law. They wanted to obey God's law. They had a zeal, a passion for God. These were not people who denied the existence of God. These were not people who did not believe the Bible to be the word of God. We could say, in a sense, that these were people who grew up going to church. Week after week after week. Hearing the word of God. Reading the word of God. Striving to obey it. In the church, they were respectable people, good neighbors, outwardly moral. We could easily see them as leaders in the church based on their outward appearance. But something was missing. Something key, something vital was missing. It's why, in reality, they would make terrible leaders in the church. They did not know the Messiah. They did not trust in Jesus. They did not love the Savior. Paul says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he's referring to Jesus, the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. He says in verse 3, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They sought to establish their own. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. And then he makes this key statement in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. Now that's our English translation. And many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. It's our English translation. It's a good one. But a more literal translation would read like this. For the end of the law. And that word end means goal or purpose or aim. For the end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that literal translation, it doesn't flow off the tongue so easily. But it helps you see the emphasis, right? That the goal of the law is Christ for righteousness. Or Christ resulting in righteousness to everyone who believes. Not to everyone who works, but to everyone who trusts in Christ. So remember, the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. What's the purpose of that law? So many will ask that question today. How does the Old Testament law relate to me today? And God's law was never given as a means for salvation. It was never given as a way that we could establish our own righteousness and merit eternal life. Instead, what does the law do? What was its purpose? Sometimes theologians refer to the threefold purpose of the law. So we'll consider those here. What was its purpose? Yes, first, the law does show us how to live to please God. That's one, one purpose of the law. It shows us how we can please God. What is the chief end of man? The, the first catechism question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then in the children's catechism, it has a follow-up question to that. How can we glorify God? The answer is by loving him and doing what he commands. So one of the ways we can glorify God is by doing what he commands. Where do we find his commands? We find them in the word of God. So the word of God does indeed show us how we can live in a way that pleases God or that glorifies God. But then what do we find in our efforts to obey? We fall short, don't we? Every single one of us. We find that we are not able to obey even in the way that we want to obey, let alone the way that God requires of us. And again, we turn to our worship guide, page six, and you see another bold heading at the top. We have sinned. This is another key component of our gathered worship. As we rehearse the gospel every Sunday, we want to put ourselves back in this rhythm of the gospel. We have sinned. And we ask that question. I'll ask it again. And just to make sure everybody's awake and following with me, you can say out loud the answer again. So we're, we're rewinding to page six. Here's the question, our call to confession. Is any man able perfectly to obey the commandments of God? And say it with me. No near man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So here's a second purpose of the law. Yes, it shows us how to live to please God, but it also shows, it shows us our sin, how we fall short. It shows us our need. Remember, all are needy. And we see that when we read the law, when we try to obey the law. We are not able to live in the way that God designed, in the way that he requires. 
we need a Savior. Every person other than Jesus who has ever lived needs a Savior. We need help from outside of ourselves. We need someone to come and rescue us, to cleanse us from our sin. And we also need one to obey for us, to be righteous in our place. I love how Pastor John Piper summarizes this. He says, God requires two things of us. He requires punishment for our sins and perfection in our lives. Our, lives, our sins must be punished and our lives must be righteous. But we cannot bear our own punishment and we cannot provide our own righteousness. So what is our hope? Where do we find the answer? And he says, therefore God, out of his immeasurable love for us, provided his own son to do both. Christ bears our punishment and Christ performs our righteousness. And when we receive Christ, when we, when we receive him by faith, not by our works, all of his punishment and all of his righteousness is counted as ours. Amen? And that's why I will ask you over and over and over again, how much sin is in your account? When you are trusting in Jesus, the reason there is none is because on him was every sin laid. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. He has borne all our punishment. No sin in your account. And the accompanying question, how much righteousness is in your account? I don't have a simple, I say it different ways, right? <laughs> it overflows. It's the perfect, full, complete righteousness of Christ. You couldn't have more righteousness in your account. It's the righteousness of Christ. So this forgiveness of sin and this righteousness, where is it found? It's not found in your performance. It's not found in your obedience. It's not found in what you do, not your obedience to law. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So the ultimate purpose of the law, the end, the telos is to drive us to Christ. That's why Paul says the end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the Israelites, they were missing it. They were missing it. They were doing what so many people today still try to do. It's what I'm sure some of your neighbors are trying to do. Some of your relatives are trying to do. Some of you may be trying to do it this very day. They were trusting in their own works, their own goodness to be made right with God. And Paul says, they did not succeed. No one will ever succeed on, in that effort. But on the other hand, the Gentiles who had been cut off from Christ, 
Remember Ephesians 2, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They, on the other hand, had learned by faith to receive the free gift of righteousness through trust in Christ alone. And so, beloved, I ask, what about you today? Christ is the only hope for righteousness for everyone. Are you, are you personally trusting in him? If you are not, you are cut off from Christ. No matter how much you may say you love the word of God, how often you may gather for worship, how hard you may strive to obey his word. If you're like the Israelites and you're doing all of that to earn your righteousness, you're missing it. And you're cut off from Christ, headed for eternal damnation. And I would urge you to repent and trust in Christ today. Beloved, this, this was me and my early life. I was the kid who went to church every Sunday. I was the one who, in school, they all thought, if anyone's a Christian, it's Troy. Because I was a rule keeper. I was a good kid. But I was trusting in my own righteousness to be made right with God. And I would still be on that path today if God had not intervened in my life. If he hadn't pursued me and brought, beloved, that is just as much in the teeth, the mouth of the lion, as a pagan living a totally immoral life. And God came and he rescued me. And I would urge you, if that's you today, turn to Christ, not to yourself. And beloved, if you are trusting in Christ for your righteousness, then you can never and you will never be condemned because your life is already hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Is this a falsehood? Is Jesus a vain hope for salvation? Or is Christ the only hope of the world? Indeed he is. May we all trust in him today. So this brings us to our second heading. When you trust in Christ for righteousness, you will never be put to shame. Look at verse 33. Paul writes, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And here Paul combines two passages from Isaiah. They are written in our reflection page, the inside cover of your worship guide this morning. The first one is Isaiah chapter 8, and the second one is from Isaiah chapter 28. And if you look at that passage, Paul, you'll notice that Paul is applying both of these passages to Christ. And this is significant because that first one, Isaiah chapter 8, is about the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is writing about the Almighty God, the one true God. Listen to it. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. So Isaiah, Isaiah says that the Lord of hosts is this stumbling stone. But then Paul here in Romans 9, he takes this, 
passage and he applies it to Christ. And he says, Israel stumbled over Christ, the stumbling stone. So here again, we see that Paul has no hesitation whatsoever in applying to Christ passages which pertain to the Lord of hosts. So what's he saying? Paul has no problem saying that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He believed and he proclaimed Jesus is God Almighty. And he says, whoever puts their trust in him will never be put to shame. Now people, we, we, we often put our trust in all kinds of things that let us down, that disappoint us, that put us to shame. To be put to shame means to have a hope that has deceived you. To trust in something that's not able to deliver on its promise, right? We do this all the time in things that don't matter at all, right? It's, it's fall is about to be here, right? Which means football is back, which means most of you are headed for heartache. You who are football fans, me for certain, many of you probably as well. Right? We put our hope in these teams, and we get all excited, and along the season, there's ups and downs. We're celebrating one week. We're miserable the next, and at the end of the, se- end of the season, NFL, what is it, 31 out of 32 teams, you'll be miserable. That's what happens. We put our trust in these things that don't matter at all. There's this letdown. There's this disappointment, and we've got to remember what our brother Greg Bretz told me. Remember, I went to visit him uh, as he was dying, and every time I saw him, he just talked about how he was looking forward to seeing Jesus. He is ready to see Jesus. And the one time I tried to talk to him about the Phillies, and he says, oh, that's not relevant. I said, thank you, brother, for that rebuke. What a great word that is to remember. But we do this. We do this in things that don't matter, but we also do it in things that are a little more important, right? We do it in relationships. We put our hope, our trust in people. And that can often sometimes lead to great sorrow, great pain, great heartache. But here, Paul's not talking about hope in this life. That's, that could be a whole other sermon. But what he's talking about is eternal life, eternal hope. What's going to enable us to stand before the judgment of a holy God? And Paul says the only rock on which we can stand is Christ. He's the rock of offense for those who reject him, those who refuse to submit to his provision of salvation. But he's the rock of salvation for all those who trust in him. And those people will never be put to shame. So beloved, think of it. In light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done, how does he stack up against anything, anyone else that you would trust in? Where does he fit? How valuable, how trustworthy is he? Is there anyone, is there anything that can rival him? And what makes Jesus so different as our hope, as our cornerstone? We could say, yes, yes, he's truly God, and yes, he's truly man, and that makes him unique. There's there's no one else that can compare with him. We could say, yes, he obeyed perfectly. He always did what pleased the Father. But ultimately, what's the basis of our hope in Christ? Is it not that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died and rose again? Jesus defeated death. He rose from the dead, and now he lives and reigns today 
to bring us to God. So the only one that can do that is he, the one who has conquered death, the one who lives and reigns today. Peter preached this Christ on the day of Pentecost to Israel in Acts chapter 2. And he says this, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So there's the humanity of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. There's God's sovereignty over it all. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's human responsibility. You see it side by side all throughout the scriptures. But then what does Peter say? God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible. Out of the realm of possibility, Not even an option. Jesus Christ was never staying dead. It was impossible. And beloved, just as it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead, to stay in the grave, so it is not possible. It is out of the realm of possibility. It is impossible for any who trust in him to be put to shame. It cannot happen. And so this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world between salvation and damnation. What will you do with Jesus? How will you respond? Will you trust in Jesus alone for righteousness or Jesus plus something else? Or perhaps it's Jesus and and maybe you're, you're trying to make your own way. So it's not so much a trust in Jesus, but it's a trust in self. Or maybe like Richard Dawkins, you deny the need for Jesus altogether. What's the theme of your song? Where is your hope and your trust? Is it Jesus? God has revealed to us that every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in that day, what will be your defense? What will be your hope? On that day when you stand before pure and perfect holiness with all your guilt and all your shame exposed. Every idle word, every thought, every motive, every action laid bare. You will see then, if you don't see now, How foolish it is to appeal to your own works, to your own righteousness, to your own efforts. You will see how far you fall short. And you will be put to shame if you have rejected Christ. If he has been been a stumbling stone for you. If you do not cast yourself upon him alone for mercy. So once again, I would urge you to turn to Christ today. And if you have, I would encourage you, beloved, 
in that day if Christ is your cornerstone, the rock on which you stand, if he is your defense, your advocate, your justification, your righteousness, you will not be put to shame. You will be vindicated. You will be rewarded. And on that day, never again will you ever question or doubt whether his grace is sufficient to cover your sin. You know, until then, this day and every day until then, our faith is under attack. But on that day, it will be confirmed. Your faith will be turned to sight. Amen? Amen. And don't you desire, don't you want everyone to share in that reward, that joy, that fellowship with Jesus, so that on that day, they can behold the face of our Savior. They can behold the goodness and the glory and the beauty and the truth of Jesus Christ, and they can rejoice. This brings us to our third and final heading. May we desire and pray that everyone would be saved. Paul Paul began Romans 9 by sharing with us his great sorrow, his anguish that so many of his fellow Israelites were cut off from Christ. And then we saw how he proclaimed God's sovereignty over salvation, both in his mercy and in his wrath. And now we see Paul's response. And notice what it's not. It's not abandonment. He doesn't say, well, well, God's going to save whom he will save, so it's not my concern. I'll just leave it to God. That's not his response. Notice also he does not respond with despair. He doesn't say, well, my loved ones, these ones who have rejected Christ, they must be vessels of wrath. There's no hope for, him, for them. No, not at all. Instead, we see Paul's passion once again, his concern, his desire for his fellow Israelites, indeed for everyone to know Jesus. We see his prayer, we see his proclamation. We'll see that in coming weeks as we continue through chapter 10. But look at verse 1 of chapter 10. What does he say? Brothers or brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Beloved, is this your heart's desire? And is this reflected in the way that you pray? That everyone, including Israel, and all that you know, would be saved. And when we, when we first started Proclamation, about 10 years ago, and we were gathering a core group of people to help us plant this church. Now, why do you plant a church in the first place? Do you plant a church to reach the lost to reach people who don't know and love Jesus in the hopes that they'll hear and believe the gospel. So in those early days as we're gathering a core group, one of the things that we did, we asked people to fill out a form and just kind of let us know if they're willing to stay with us for that first year, help us get started. One of the questions that we asked was, who is one person that you will pray for? That somebody in your life, maybe they, maybe they don't have a home church, maybe they don't know Jesus, but you're going to be praying for them. And you're going to be looking for opportunities to proclaim Christ to them and to invite them to proclamation. Tell us who they are, and we're going to join you in prayer for those people. And I think it's time that we return to that. With that kind of intentionality among our membership. That we don't forget why we are here. 
to reach the lost with a, a desire and a prayer that everyone would be saved. So I want to encourage you to think about that. Who are you praying for? Who could you proclaim Christ to? Who could you invite to proclamation? And let us know. Ask others to join you, to partner with you in prayer. Tell others who you are praying for. Tell me. You know, I think that if, 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 you, if you're a normal follower of Christ, your desire in this area, it fluctuates, right? It waxes and it wanes. And today, if your desire, your zeal, your practice is low, let's begin by asking God to give us his heart, his love for people. And if you want to see that, just read the Gospels. But there are many passages that you can meditate on. Maybe you start with Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells those parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And hear what he says when the sheep is found, when the coin is found. Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Beloved, all of heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Meditate on that. Or meditate on Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the plight of the lost. They are not our enemies. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Just as we have been rescued, they need to be rescued. And so Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. Meditate on these passages. Ask God to give you his heart, his love for people. And if your zeal is low, your practice in prayer is low. Also, I would encourage us to trust in the power of the ever-present Holy Spirit. The life-giving Spirit who lives in you. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The Spirit gives life. This means the Holy Spirit can save anyone and everyone. The person you think would never come to Christ, it's not hard for the Holy Spirit to give him a new heart. And it's not hard for him to do that through you. So beloved, wherever you go, you take the living Spirit with you. So trust in the power of the ever-present Holy Spirit. And then, of course, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Because as you behold his glory... As you are conformed to his image, as you grow in your love for him, you worship him, you delight in him, you will want others to do the same. That's why the disciples said when they're commanded, don't tell people about Jesus anymore. We're going to beat you. We're going to throw you in prison. And what did they say? We, we, we can't help it. We cannot keep it in. They, can't they couldn't help speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And then let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, to either continue or start praying for people by name. And let's make it a team effort. It's not a solo effort. Let us know. You know, accountability breeds activity. 
So if you share with people who you're praying for, they will join you here, the proclamation family. We will join you in prayer. And we will encourage you. We can talk to people about it. So maybe today after the service, you share with someone. Maybe in a community group, you share with your community group who you're praying for. Maybe you send me a text, an email, let us know. We'll follow up on this in the next couple weeks. But let's do this together. Who is one person that you will pray for? That you will ask the Lord to give you opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. That you might invite them to worship with us when the time is right as the Spirit leads. Or to some other, in October we're having this annual uh, outreach we have. That might be a good opportunity. Invite them to that fourth Friday in October. They come get a free meal. They meet other people from the church. So be thinking about that. I do want to talk about that here, here just for a moment. Today, on your way out, if you look at the table out there, you'll notice we have some tracks out there. So there's, there's three different ones that we have out there. We would encourage you <clears throat> to take one with you. And it's not for you. But we encourage you to take one with you. These are simple, excellent summaries of the gospel. And over the next few weeks, we are going to encourage you to be praying about, pray for these people, and look for opportunities to share Christ with them. This is one simple way you can do it. Some of you are practicing this. Some of you are like, I could never do that. And maybe you won't ever do that. Maybe there's a different way that God will use you. But maybe you will as we pray together and consider these opportunities. But beloved, the point behind all this is that it would be our heart's desire and prayer to God that the people within our sphere of influence would be saved. And beloved, it's not a falsehood that's our comfort, that is our hope. It is the solid rock. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the risen, ascended, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming again. And every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until then, may we not only trust him ourselves, but may we pray that all would worship the one true God, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, our righteousness. For no one who trusts in him will ever be put to shame. Amen? Amen. Amen.